study in Exodus. Generally, when I teach through Exodus, I usually get up to around Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, and we kind of stop there, and we do some highlights here later on. So we're continuing our study here through Exodus 17. We did the first half of it last week, and really what the last two chapters have been about, if you haven't been with us, is just Israel. And just to be quite honest, they're constant complaining complaining about water, complaining about food, and God's miraculous hand in meeting their needs. And that's really been what the last few weeks have been about, is that simplicity of, hey, listen, if the Lord brought them out of Egypt, if the Lord parted the Red Sea for them, he's going to take care of their needs. And that's that daily trust, that daily walk with the Lord, where I say, Lord, I trust you that you're going to get me through the day. I'm not worried about the year. I'm not worried about the month. I'm not worried about the week. Sometimes I'm not even worried about the day. Just get me through this hour. And that's what the Lord does. And that's faith. That's the idea of faith. Well, we've kind of covered those points. Now, part of your walk with faith is what? It's also fighting. And that's what this one's about here tonight. Exodus 17, verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now Joseph... Excuse me, now Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called his name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now there's a lot of points in here. First off, let's talk about who Amalek is. Amalek is a descendant of Esau. Now if you remember Jacob and Esau, Jacob wasn't a great guy. But Jacob was the one that the Lord chose, and Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau was his brother. Esau was the one that was supposed to get the blessing. Esau was the one that was supposed to get the birthright. Esau would rather fulfill his flesh than do what God asked him to do. So therefore, Esau lost the birthright, and you see his descendants. His descendants represent the flesh. Every time you see Amalek in the Bible, just think of the flesh. They're annoying. They won't die. They just keep coming back. I mean, think about that. I, I've been saved for 22 years, and there's still things I struggle with now that I struggled with 22 years ago. And if you would have asked me, if you'd go back to 1993 and talk to brand new Christian James and say, James, in 2015, do you think you'll still be struggling with that? Oh, of course not. Give me a couple more months and I'll have this thing whipped. Man, the flesh is strong. It just keeps coming back. And Amalek is this awful sore on Israel that never leaves. They're a problem here. They're a problem in Judges. They're a problem in Samuel. So you finally know what God tells them to do in 1 Samuel 15? He tells Saul to utterly kill every man, woman, and child. And Saul, in his disobedience, doesn't. See, that's a picture of the flesh. God comes to you and me and says, James, kill it. Kill that flesh. Kill that thing that brings you down. Okay, Lord, I will. But I'm just going to keep a tiny bit back for me. 
And then we wonder why we do not walk in victory. Because we always allow a little bit of the flesh to get, uh, get us. You know, it, it just amazes me when you see the things that people struggle with, how they're not willing to completely, utterly let it go. If you see a guy struggling with lust and pornography, my goodness, why would you even get online unless you absolutely have to? Why would you watch movies? Why would you do that? If you see a person struggling with alcohol, why even go near that stuff in the gas station? Why even walk down that aisle? But yet we give ourselves this little aspect of the flesh and we say, why? I killed most of it. Unless you kill all of it, it will always come back to get you. And this is what Amalek does. They're never completely taken out. And so therefore, they just always bother Israel for hundreds of years. Part of it is because Israel was never obedient enough to fully kill the flesh. So here's just a quick question to ask you. Do you got something in your life that just year after year, maybe decade after decade, keeps coming back to bite you? Now ask yourself this. Ask yourself in all sincerity, am I willing to put that to death? Now most of us will say, oh yes, I want that dead. But when push comes to shove and you got that bug under your foot, you hesitate. Because there's a part of you that enjoys what that flesh gives you. There's a part of you that enjoys what it does for you. And so you kill it mostly, you wound it, you maim it, but you don't destroy it. And Amalek is a picture of what happens when we do this. Now, what did Amalek do that was so bad and that was so wrong? You don't need to turn there. But what happens is, in the references in Deuteronomy 25, when Israel was leaving Egypt, the stragglers at the end, the weak, the sick, the infirmed, Amalek would walk behind Israel and constantly attack their rear ranks, according to Deuteronomy 25. So they would constantly come up and attack these rear ranks of Israel where the weak were. Now, is that also not a picture of what happens? If you're always straggling in the back in your Christian walk, guess what happens? You're easy pickings. I don't know how many times I talk to somebody... And they talk about how they're just constantly going through these things and they're just constantly struggling with this and constantly struggling with that. And as I'm talking to them and trying to encourage them, I'm trying to help them, but in the back of my mind I'm thinking, man, I know you. I've known you for decades. And you know what? I've never seen you crazy on fire for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm not saying... It's, it's like me coming to you right now and saying, guys, this is what an NBA player should look like. And you would say... No, it shouldn't. But most of the time, we're not honest enough to say that, right? If I came to you guys right now and said, guys, I just want to let you know the Lord's laid it on my heart. I want to become a professional athlete. How many of you would have the guts to say, you're stupid, man? I mean, how many would? Thank you, Jim Hoops. Um, Most of you would say, hey, James, if that's where the Lord's led you, then go. Come on. So what happens is we see these people in the body of Christ that constantly are being attacked. Why? Because they're just straggling at the end. They're, they're not getting dope deeper to Jesus. They're not getting closer. Once again, I'm not picking. I'm just being honest. So this is what Amalek did. They hung out in the back and they said, look at all these weak Israelites coming out. Those are the ones we're going to attack. Why would we attack the strong ones? Why would we attack the armed ones? If I get up in the morning and I put my armor of God on, Satan says, you know what? Why would I want to fight somebody who's armed? I'm just going to look for somebody else who decided not to put the armor of God on that morning. It's a whole lot easier to hit them. 
So Amalek represents this flesh, and they're constantly nagging at Israel. So here's the first battle, and they said, we're going to take these guys out. Now, this is really fascinating. Look how this works. Joshua does the fighting, and Moses does the praying. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. You know, we just sent a group down to Mexico on a missions trip a few months ago. Only a few went. They did the fighting. We did the praying. Not everybody's going to show up for the car care ministry on Saturday, but I hope you'll pray for those people that are out there serving. Most of us aren't going to church camp next week. Will you pray for those that are going? This is how the body of Christ is supposed to work, and this is why I, I, I nag at you guys all the time. Grab one of those prayer calendars that are in the back. Put that up on your fridge. It's always something to pray about. You may not be called to get into the fight, but you're called to pray for those that are in the fight. And that's what you see here with Moses and Joshua. Moses, God bless him, at this time is 80-plus years old. And I'm not picking on my aged saints in here, okay? Moses is not supposed to be out there swinging the sword. Moses is supposed to be praying for those young whippersnappers that are out there swinging the sword. And that's exactly what Moses does. Here's the problem with fighting, and here's the problem with praying, because I've been involved with both. I've had days of physical ministry as a pastor. I come home and I'm completely whipped. I've had days of spiritual ministry as a pastor where I've not done one physical thing and I'm still completely whipped. It's just different types of being whipped. Moses gets tired. And so as he's doing this, he's out there. And, and you know, and I'm not trying to mock this, but, but you have to put yourself in this position. And you have to wonder what's going on. Verse 11, so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now just think about this. What, what was going on with Moses? I mean, he's up on this hilltop. He's watching this battle. The battle starts. He sees the Jews run out. He sees Amalek run out, and there's this big boom, this big fight. Don't you think Moses is getting pumped up? He's got his hands up in the air. He's like, look at this. You guys are doing good. This is great. They're winning. And so, you know, just like a typical person, you put your hands up, like, this is great, this is wonderful. Now, wait, now they're losing. Why are they losing? Now they're winning. You know, see what I'm saying? You've got hands up, hands up. Eventually, after a while, don't you think he kind of looked and just did this? And it's like, you know, figured it out. So what he started realizing was when his hands are up, they win. When their hands are down, they lose. Now, my God that I serve is a God of grace. Why would my God say, you've got to keep your hands up to win? I mean, doesn't that sound like a work? You have to remember, what is the purpose of hands being up? We sing all these songs about hands up in the air. When you put your hands up in the air, it's kind of the universal sign for what? Surrender. When I put my hands up in the air, when I'm worshiping or praying, and I put my hands up like this, I'm, I'm saying, Lord, I, I give up. I surrender myself to you. Why else do we put our hands up in the air? Now, you've quit doing this when you probably got to be about four years old. I got little kids at home. If my little kids want me, Tyrus just comes over and does what? Puts his hands up in the air. Doesn't have to say anything. Unspoken symbol of dad, pick me up. When I put my hands up in the air, be it in worship or prayer, there's a part of me that is surrendering myself to the Lord. And the other part of me is saying, Lord, I am just a baby. Pick me up. Carry me. Help me through. And this is an ongoing theme in the Bible. Just a couple quick references for those that are note takers. You can write this down. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. 
Psalmist writes in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, when I first got saved, I was not a hand raiser. It made me feel uncomfortable. It made me feel awkward. In fact, it made me feel awkward and uncomfortable when some of you raised your hands. I didn't want to sit near you during worship. The longer I've walked with the Lord... Now I think you're weird if you don't raise your hands. Just kidding. Love you. But I've reached a point where now it's like, Lord, I'm going to raise my hands. Because I just, I surrender myself to you. I I give myself to you. I'm just the little spiritual toddler and I need you. And I'm just going to lift my hands up to you. That's what that means and that's what it represents. It's not a work. It's not a have to. It's a symbol of surrender. It's a symbol of just, Lord, I need you. And that's why the Lord says, lifting holy hands. Because it's this great picture of what it is. Now, what happens here is Moses can't keep his hands up. He needs help. So, verse 12, they put a stone so that he can sit. And then Aaron and her support his hands on both sides. What a beautiful picture this is. This is why the gals out here, when they do their prayer groups, they call it Aaron and her prayer group. Now, the first time they contacted me and they talked about Aaron and her prayer group... I didn't realize they were saying her, H-U-R. I thought they were Aaron and her, H-E-R. And I didn't fully understand it. I get it now, though. So, Aaron and her. It's a great little play on words there. I don't think they meant it that way, but that's the way I take it. So, Aaron and her, this idea of supporting each other in prayer. This is such a biblical concept. You pray for me, I pray for you. Why don't we do that? Why don't we? Prayer is supposed to be individual. There's a time of prayer with my Savior and myself in the morning and the day, throughout the day. There's also a time of corporate prayer. This is why we're having a prayer time after church tonight like we do. This is why coming up in July we're having a church-wide prayer service. This is why they have the Aaron and her. Is because there's supposed to be this corporate prayer. This is what I hear, though. Well, I, I don't like praying in groups. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Then you're right there just completely, utterly limiting God's power in your life. I don't get that. And I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm not trying to make you squirm. I'm just telling you that doesn't make any biblical sense. It just doesn't. There is a power in group prayer. The early church got together on a regular basis just to pray. Now, you know what else I hear? Well, I don't like asking prayer for myself. I'm telling you right now, I pray for myself more than I pray for you guys. And some people get really awkward with that. Well, I don't think I should pray for myself. Go read the Gospels and read how much time, how many times Jesus prayed for himself. Read the Gospels and realize how often Jesus asked others to pray for him. Our Savior who walked this earth prayed for himself and asked others to pray with him. He set the example. We understand the importance of it. Why is there a power in group prayer? I think a couple different ways. Number one, it humbles you. It humbles you to be in a group of people and and lift up your request to admit you're struggling. We had a pastor's prayer group that met out here years ago, um, just different Ohio Calvary pastors, and and we circled up right here. And, you know, when pastors get together, there's an openness of, hey, we all struggle as pastors, but there's also this pride 
You know, we always ask each other, how's it going? How's your church going? And everybody has, oh, it's going great. The Lord's really moving and working. We lost half our people, but that must have been what God wanted us to happen. You know, I mean, there's always this like, it's like this building, you know, who's the best? So we sat here as pastors and we were praying. And one of the pastors, I'll never forget it. He, he, he sat right here and he goes, guys, I, I got to confess to you. Because the other day I was in my computer at my office. And I, and, I, and I looked at pornography. And my wife walked in on me. And I want to confess to you guys. Wow. Humbleness. You realize how hard that is to admit? You realize, I mean, and that guy just sat there and that, and that always hit me. And from this point on, that's the guy I go to more than anybody because I know he's going to be real. There's a humbleness in prayer when you say, you know what? I'm struggling and will you pray for me? There's also an encouragement in group prayer because you hear other people are struggling too. See, so often we come into church and we got this fakeness. How's it going? Oh, Jesus is moving in my life like you wouldn't believe. I hope he is. But a lot of times we just say the right things. There's an encouragement in hearing other people going through good times and bad times. Prayer also teaches you to minister. I was at a group prayer session not too long ago and someone lifted up a prayer request. I didn't even know they were struggling with that. I didn't even know that was a difficulty. I got my little calendar book out, wrote it down. It's like, okay, Lord, eye-opening. That's something we can minister to them on. Prayer also brings a unity together. You know, I got this one picture. Anytime I leave the house, the boys like to go to the front room of our house And they like to stand at the window and wave at me as I leave. And usually the dog comes up and does the dog things. And Judah, my second born, he likes to play a song on the piano. And so even now in June, I'm hearing jingle bells as I leave. It's just kind of this thing we do. So jingle bells is playing. The dog is going crazy. And there's five boys staring out the window. I love it. It's unity. I see my family together. God, I think, looks down from heaven sometimes, and instead of seeing us arguing and fighting as brothers and sisters, he sees us all coming together in him. You know what the hard part about unity is? Some of us don't want to be unified with the body of Christ. I've heard people come up to me and say, I don't do group prayer sessions at church. Why? I I can't stand the way some people pray. Man, you got to get over that. Everybody prays differently. I've heard people say, well, I'm not a good prayer. I don't know what a good prayer sounds like. It's just talking to God, talking to your dad. But whatever excuse you have for not being part of the body of Christ praying, it's literally just that. It's an excuse. And you're really missing out on something that's powerful. And you see this with Aaron, her, and Moses. There's a power there of these three being together, unified in the Lord in prayer. And I tell you, don't ever get too busy that you can't be part of a time of praying for other believers. And maybe it's just in the foyer. Maybe it's just after church. Maybe it's up here. Maybe it's the prayer calendar. I don't know what it is. But if the Lord opens a door, don't be afraid to say, hey, let's just pray right now. Can I put my hand on your shoulder and pray for you? That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. So that's Amalek. That's prayer. That's Moses, Aaron, and her. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about that before we get to the last thing here? Yes, Mr. Todd. No place to shop. Okay. I don't know what to say to that. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, thanks, Brenda. 
Yeah, he goes, I'll take them home. <laughs> oh, man. It's like the Spirit's moving and then Harold Todd speaks. You know, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, Harold. I'm kidding. I love you, man. Yes, Jeff. That is true. Their shoe, shoes did not wear out for the 40 years they were in the wilderness. That is true. That is true. They didn't need to go shopping. They didn't need to go shopping. There's a spiritual point right there. So, uh, <laughs> Harold was deep. He just didn't know it. That's the, that's the whole thing. Just kidding. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? All right. This is the fun part of the lesson for me because if you see here in verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. I love Joshua. I love this guy. I just absolutely love this guy. This guy is just an amazing example of just a servant that the Lord moves into the place of being a leader. This is the first mention of Joshua here in the Bible. So, Joshua first mentioned. You know what the most important word is? Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua, here's the important word, did. He did. He was obedient. Why did God use Joshua? Because Joshua was willing to be obedient. I firmly believe that there's a lot of brothers and sisters in the Lord that say, Lord, use me. And God then says, okay, please go do this. And they say, yeah, no thanks. That that wasn't the ministry I was looking for. We don't get to choose the ministry. We don't. We don't. If I'm looking at this passage right here, and I see Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and Hur, I pick, I pick Aaron or Hur. <laughs> Keep me out of the battle, and I'll just have some guy's arm rest on my shoulder. Joshua got chosen to go into battle, and Joshua did. Never forget the just pure simplicity of obedience. If God asks you to do something, do it. So God calls Joshua through Moses to do this. Joshua does. Now look what happens here in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now don't you think the guys at this time are going, Lord Jehovah just mentioned Joshua. Why, why does God want this to be mentioned for just Joshua? See, so often we are so used to this book I say Joshua, and you're like, well, of course I know Joshua. He took over after Moses. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible about Joshua. But imagine you're reading this for the first time. And so all of a sudden, you're just reading this, and you get to verse 9, and Joshua's mentioned for the first time. Oh, Joshua, I wonder what's going to happen with him. And then all of a sudden, you read in verse 14, God says, write this down and write it in the hearing of Joshua. Would not your ears perk up a little bit and say, okay, God wants to do something with this guy, maybe? See, what's happening here in verse 14 is the Lord already knows the plan for Joshua. But Joshua doesn't know the plan yet. Joshua's just willing to be obedient. I look back to me when I first got saved. I got saved in the fall of 93. And I distinctly remember getting saved. And the first job I did, the first thing I ever did out here at church was we were meeting in the White House, uh, which is now the library, and I got to do announcements. And it was Christmas morning. And the reason I got to do announcements on Christmas morning is because no one else was going to be at church on Christmas. So I'm pretty sure Jim just went down the list and said, I think James will be there. I was so excited that I got to do announcements. I remember I was in my living room at my house, and my oldest sister, Janelle, was there. I went through announcements with her and practiced. 
And I even asked my sister Janelle, did I sound okay? Because I was, I was so excited to do announcements. So I did announcements. The next job that I got to do is they let me serve in nursery. Can you believe that? I did a stint in nursery. I really did. After I served in nursery, I started teaching Sunday school. Now, amongst this time, I'm helping set up tables and chairs. And then they let me do sound. Back then when we had tapes. And so what would happen is Jim would be teaching and we'd have the tape and I'd have this little flashlight. We were meeting in the library at this time. And you'd watch the tape. And when the tape got near the end, you'd wait for Jim to do a dramatic pause. Stop, hit, flip, go, record. As quick as you possibly could. It was an art form. So that's sound from 1994, 1995. That's what I got to do. And then I got to write the titles on the tapes. So then it just kind of goes on. So this is now 1995. I'm teaching Sunday school and I'm doing this. And then all of a sudden what starts happening in around 96, 97, Jim starts asking me to just, hey, could, could you just sit with me with this? Could you just kind of sit in? Why am I sitting in? He calls me over to his house, summer of 97. Hey. I, I would like you to really consider teaching Wednesday nights. I'd like to make you an assistant pastor. I said, no. <laughs> I don't want it. So I didn't. Comes back to me in the fall of 97. I'd really like you to start teaching Wednesday nights. Okay, you know, I feel the Lord's there, so I've been teaching Wednesday nights now for 18 years. Wanted me to be an assistant. I knew what it meant to be a pastor. I saw what he went through. I wanted nothing to do with that. December of 97, he says, will you fill in on a Sunday? Finally, you know what I mean? The big leaks. So I get to church, and, and we're in the cafeteria at this time, and I do my first teaching on a Sunday morning. And the bulletin is there, and it says, teaching. You know, and then you know what it said? Assistant Pastor James Irvin. Now, I don't say that pridefully. You know why? He just made me assistant. I kept telling him no. He finally just did it. So I guess it's in writing, so it happened. That's how I became an assistant pastor. Because he just... You're promoted, I guess. I don't know. All of a sudden, then, what happens now is assistant pastor and Jim would have these um, meetings that really weren't going real well. Like, it was kind of tense, as pastors have to do. James, come in and sit with me on this. I don't know how many times I sat with him up in that prayer room in tough meetings, because that's how you learned. And then the Lord just kept moving and working. Next thing you know, 2,000, he steps down. I take over out here. My point is this. You see what the Lord was doing. Looking back now... I see that I basically had seven years of on-the-job training of this is what it is. I had no idea at that time that that's what the Lord was doing. I look at Joshua, and I don't, I don't think Joshua knows what's going on. God just starts using Joshua. So he's mentioned in verse 9. Verse 10, he does it. Verse 14, hey, make sure Joshua knows this. Guess what happens next? I'm not going to go to all the verses. I'll just tell you. I'm in Exodus 24. Joshua is now known as Moses' assistant. He got promoted, I guess. And as Moses' assistant, guess what Joshua got to do? He went up on the mountain when Moses received the law. Then in Exodus 33, verse 11, guess where we see Joshua? Joshua was always hanging out in the tabernacle. Because he was a man that just wanted to be close to God. Then in Numbers 14... Joshua gets to be one of the spies that had sent into the promised land. But you know what also happens in Numbers 14? Joshua is one of only a couple guys that has to stand up in front of all the Jews and take a stand. 
and say, listen, we can take this promised land. You guys are too scared to do it. You don't have faith to do it. We can do it. Part of being in charge and part of being leadership is sometimes being the bad guy. And Joshua, for the first time, had to be the bad guy. And guess what? He passed. Now, go with me, if you will, to Numbers 27. Joshua starts out as a military leader. He then gets his name recorded because Joshua needs to remember this. Then, next thing you know, he's an assistant. Next thing you know, he's on the mountain receiving the law. Next thing you know, he's hanging out in the tabernacle. Now he's a spy. Now he has to take a stand. And finally, finally now, years later, what do we see in Numbers 27? Numbers 27, verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man whom is the Spirit. Man, he's got the Spirit. And lay your hand on him and set him before Elziar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Elziar the priest whom he shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of Urim. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him and the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Elziar the priest and before all the congregation. He laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hands of Moses. Now Joshua gets a taste of leadership. Now Joshua has responsibilities. Jump ahead to Deuteronomy 34. Two more references real quick. Deuteronomy 34. Moses dies in Deuteronomy 34. Guess what happens down Deuteronomy 34 verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him as the children of Israel Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua now is in charge. Now, you would think that this would be smooth sailing for Joshua, right? Look here at Joshua 1. Just should be right there next page for you. Joshua 1. God gives Joshua a pep talk. As he's now the leader of Israel. Look what God keeps saying to him. Look at verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Okay? Look at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. If you're keeping track, that means in four short verses, verses, God is telling Joshua three times to be strong and of good courage. Real quick question. Why did God have to keep telling Joshua to be strong of good courage? Because he wasn't. He wasn't. Just let's just be honest. This is the guy. Joshua came out of Egypt. Joshua and Caleb are the only two guys that were allowed to live through this wandering here. So Joshua comes out of Egypt. There was 20 and above. Joshua fought the Amalekites and won. Joshua was on the mountain when the law was given. Joshua was full of the Spirit. Joshua had hands laid on him to lead this nation. Joshua finally gets it, and then three times in four verses, God says, be strong and of good courage. Why? Because Joshua wasn't strong and of good courage. That is actually so encouraging to me, because it shows that every guy, every gal, is always a little bit of, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. Neither did Joshua know. Here's the thing. If you want to be a Joshua, and I hope you do, because I'm going to tell you right now, the church has enough filled seats with people that don't want to do anything. Okay? 
So if you want to be a Joshua, that means you're willing to fight and battle and take a stand. You've got to be willing to be faithful in the little things. I remember years ago, it's probably been 10, 15 years ago, there was a guy that started coming out to church. And back during that time, we, we had the time we could do this. Dawn and I used to try to get together with every new person that came out to church and say, hey, we want to get to know you. This is before kids. This is before everything. So we went over to his house, and uh, we're talking to him. I only met this guy. He's been at church one time. So we're at his house, and uh, he's kind of going through his life and what everything is going on. We get ready to leave, and this is what he tells me. I met the guy one time at church. It was over at his house now one time. He goes, hey, you know, if you ever want me to be on the board at church, I'd be willing to. I met you one time. But he already thought he was board material. Now listen, if you've met the board out here at church, you realize our standards are very low. I mean, you understand that. But, not proven. Not proven. I tell you, when I look for servants, I look for battle-hardened servants. I look for servants that have been around the block a few times. I look for servants that have proven themselves in the little things. I look for servants that are people of prayer and of the word. It's not just a willing heart. It's a willing heart that understands what this means. And you look at Joshua, you see this. I'm willing to battle. I'm willing to tag along. I'm willing to be an assistant. I'm willing to go up on the holy mountain. I'm willing to take a stand when everybody else says I'm wrong. I'm willing to tell those people they're wrong. And I'm willing to share authority with Moses to learn the ropes And then also, I guess I'm willing to take correction from the Lord because obviously I'm not strong or of good courage. Because why else would God have to tell me that three times in four verses? I tell you, pray for more Joshua's in the body of Christ. And to be quite honest, and this isn't being prideful, this isn't being arrogant. If you feel that you're a Joshua, just start serving. Just start praying. Don't be afraid to come up and say, "Where, where do you want me? Where do you need us? Because I'm willing to do whatever. And I'll say, hey, amen. Because you know what? There's a lot of widows. There's a lot of orphans. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of things we want to do as a church. And these Joshua's, man, they're priceless. That's just saying, I'm willing to serve. And some of you may say, you know what? I'm not called to be the Joshua. Well, you know what? We also still need the Moseses on the mountaintops praying. I still, we still need the Aaron's and the Hur's that are helping the Moseses pray. There are so many different areas in the body of Christ. And going back to that battle, you have to have someone swinging the sword, and you've got to have somebody praying for that person swinging the sword. Both of those jobs are equally, vitally important. If we had everybody swinging the sword, who's praying for these people? And if we have everybody praying, well, then who's swinging the sword? The body of Christ needs all of it. And I am so thankful for the Joshua's. I'm so thankful for what the Lord has shown us and done with those people. And, uh, boy, what a blessing it is. And I know there's Joshua's out there. I know there are. And I know there are Moses and Aaron's and hers out there. And I tell you, what a blessing it is to the body of Christ. So, hey, that ends our study here. We're kind of getting short on time. We want to make sure we've got enough time here to pray tonight. Uh, Exodus 18 takes us a little bit different direction here next week. But, hey, anybody got any final questions, comments here about anything that we went over tonight? All righty. Hey, let's pray. Lord, I pray you would raise up Moseses and Aaron's and hers that are just people of prayer and just people of ministry, people with the heart just to care. Lord, I pray you'd raise up Joshua's that are willing to get out there and take a stand and swing the sword. 
Lord, I, I just pray that right now, all the way back in the children's ministry, that there's these just young hearts being prepared for service. Lord, help us get our eyes off of us and get our eyes on you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we want to serve you. And just like with Joshua, when you call us to do something, I want to be able to say, I did. I did. Lord, lead us, guide us, and direct us in all ways and all things. In your name, amen. Hey, for those that want to pray, feel free.